In Matthew chapter 13, uh, when Jesus was explaining to his disciples about his teaching ministry, the nature of it, an aspect of it, he drew from the sixth chapter of Isaiah uh, to communicate that there's going to be people, as he teaches, who when they hear the truth, it doesn't penetrate beyond uh, the ear, the wall of the ear. And Jesus says, of those people, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says this, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will see, but never perceive. For their hearts grow dull, their ears could hardly hear. And this is one of the reasons, it seems to me, that after Jesus would teach and give instruction, He would say, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not as, not as if some people have ears and some people don't have ears. Uh, but some people are going to hear, but it's going to hit their ears and it's going to fall deaf. It's going to fall dead at that point. That in order for the hearing to take effect, it must move beyond the wall of the ear into the mind, down into the heart where it gets hold of the volition and the will and the desires for there to be change and impact upon the person. As a youth, perhaps you participated or you've witnessed uh, the game called the telephone uh, game. It's a simple game, often played among uh, kids, kind of an icebreaker. It might be a group of 10 or 20 or 30 uh, youth. They'll stand in a circle and a leader whispers into the ear of the first person some phrase. And if it's children, it's a very usually simple phrase, something like, my cat is in my lap. And then each successive person is to whisper the saying as they heard it uh, to the next person till it reaches that last person and they're to say out loud what they heard. And it usually gets a laugh because it's distorted and it gets mangled through the process. So my cat is in my lap, might end up the, the coffee was spilled and all the people laughed. And you think, what happened? What, how, how did it get, did someone do that on purpose uh, midway through? Did someone not hear correctly? What what occurred? Now, it's just a fun game. The consequences are not very significant at all. But if your faith, if your life depended on hearing correctly and then imparting truth clearly and rightly, great would be the consequences. Well, we're continuing in Isaiah, looking at four texts. We're in the third, Servant Song. Uh, These are poems or songs that uh, by God through Isaiah he gives really to uh, looking down time to those future exiles in Babylon. These are servant songs we call them. They're descriptions of this figure that is going to come to redeem and to restore and to help uh, the people of God. And here in Isaiah 50, the third servant song or poem we see this figure who not only has ears to hear, but then who imparts words, teaching that sustains people, weary people. So the text is Isaiah 50, it's verses 4 through 11. Listen now to God's Word. Isaiah 50, beginning at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. But behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Comparing those who would trust in the light of God versus their own light. Through this passage, the servant is leading us to a particular destination. And it's verse 10. It's to fear the Lord, to have reverence for God, to trust and rely upon Him. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. Central to this whole text that we have heard is the theme of obedience. Obedience. How important is this theme in the Christian faith? We think of the Decalogue, a summary of all the commandments of God. The Ten Commandments. Or the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, to love God with all of our heart. And the second, like it, from Leviticus 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience is so crucial in Christian living, to be sure. It's one of the first themes that children are taught growing up in a Christian home. The importance of obeying and growing up in a Christian church. I was recalling as a young boy who grew up in a Reformed church, learning in Sunday school songs about obedience. I won't sing it, but it essentially went like this, O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it joyfully. By the way, that can be an ally for you parents. This is... We want to teach this to our kids. This is good. But it's not just children who need to learn obedience and who struggle with obedience. I can say with sincerity, over the course of my Christian life, I have many times fallen well short of holiness. Times when I did not obey the Lord at all, let alone with joy in my heart. And any true Christian who would examine their lives for just two minutes in light of the commandments of God will see that they fall short, well short. If one doesn't see it, they're either not a Christian or they're lacking the maturity to see very well what sin is, idolatry and God's holy commands. Think about the Apostle Paul. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists a number of things that, that brought about suffering in his life. He mentions five times receiving the 40 lashes, having sleepless nights, without food, shipwrecked, in danger from robbers, his own people at sea, three times beaten with rods, nearly left for dead. And yet, arguably, his greatest expression of anguish comes in Romans chapter 7. As he describes that inward war between the flesh and his new nature in Christ. And then he finally gets to that point where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, the remedy is are these servant songs. Isaiah 50 is an answer. It is because of our sin and our disobedience that we need a Savior who will be obedient on our behalf. This is part of of the Messiah's calling to obey the Lord where His people disobey Him. He is representing His people. And then on the cross, He is uh, substituting Himself. And so this passage is incredibly good news because when a person is united to this servant by faith, his obedience is reckoned, it is counted to you. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, "...to the one who does not work, but believes in faith, in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." And then he draws from David's words in Psalm 32. "...Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." By faith, you are counted righteous. I want us to see two ways the servant in this text of Isaiah 50 is obedient and why it matters. First of all, and perhaps surprising, an emphasis on the obedient Messiah, an aspect of which we may not give a lot of attention to, but he's obedient in his listening. The servant. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Verse 5. The Lord has opened my ear. This is the servant speaking. God has given me, he says, the tongue of those who are taught. The servant is a student. This is language of discipleship. He's a disciple. He's a learner. His words and teaching reveal this is one who has been taught. The servant is a scholar. He's well trained in the ways and the words of God. The servant is a scholar. Learned. Taught. I will say I'm often impressed when I hear of someone being the, the valedictorian. Perhaps we have some uh, here. First in their class, or maybe second in their class, or if someone graduates summa cum laude with highest uh, distinction. I guess I'm impressed because that was, I wasn't close to that. Uh, I think of someone like Jonathan Edwards, 
graduating as valedictorian of what would be Yale College. So distinguished was he, he gave his valedictory lecture in Latin, of which we have. I couldn't read it, but we've got it. Some people are very scholarly, book smart. There are people whose minds simply work at a different level. I remember reading an interview about a, a savant, a kind of a genius named Daniel Tammet. Not only a genius, but likely someone with a, a beyond photographic memory. And he was describing an event in which he read the number or ratio pi, 3.14, which I don't understand well, but I believe it's an infinite number. And he read this number, 22,000. 3.14, on and on, for 22,000 numbers. I don't know how many pages or, or chapters that uh, fills up. He read it once. Then he repeated all 22,000 of those numbers by memory. In fact, the number was 22,514. Apparently, 22,515, he, he forgot at that point. It took him hours, he said. Hours and hours. He had to take breaks. He had energy bars and Powerade to get him through this. He said it was exhausting. It was like running a marathon in his mind. He had the numbers. He just he needed the energy to keep going. Amazing. That is impressive. But not the purpose of the servant's learning or mind. But we are, it seems to me, in the picture of a schoolroom. You hear the language. The servant says, morning by morning, the Lord awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. It's a schoolroom. But it's not merely for academics. We might say this is a schoolroom, but it's a particular kind of room. Maybe we would call it a war school. This servant is preparing for battle. Verse 8, Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. The servant is learning and being trained for spiritual battle. And ultimately, what's it for? Verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. The special task of the servant, his learning and training, is in order to know how to sustain the weary soul. The servant scholar is an expert in the field of lifting people up, lifting up the downcast, lifting up the weary soul. It's really a picture of sustaining grace and saving grace by the word of the servant. He's an expert. We live in a society filled with specialists and experts. People who can adjust uh, the spine or the neck and deal with different aspects of the human condition or massage tissue to relieve stress or who can apply tests x-rays and MRIs, ultrasounds, to identify some ailment. But who has a word to lift up the weary soul? To bring joy where there was sorrow. The Puritan 
William Bridge in, in his work, The Lifting Up of the Downcast. He says, when all of our joints, our physical joints are in place, we can, we can carry quite a load, quite a burden. But all it takes is just one joint out of place and burdens become very heavy, impossible to carry. This text certainly points us to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. So well known to many of us. When Jesus says, Come to Me, all you who are weary, worn out, fatigued, and I will give you rest. And then He says, Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me. I'm gentle. You'll find rest for your souls. The servant has a word to sustain. It's a word that centers on Him. As our Lord Jesus says, come to Me and then take, take My yoke. We, we don't work with yokes. We don't see yokes. This is an agricultural image. A, a yoke consisted normally of a large, heavy wooden bar that laid over two animals with a wooden or metal ring to go around each of their neck, tying them together. When you look at pictures of yokes, the image itself appears heavy. So why does Jesus say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? What does He mean? It's not merely because He's gentle. We're told He is gentle in the text. It's because the yoke is Christ's yoke. Thus, We are with Christ. Christ is with us. And if you're yoked to Christ, that means you're walking in the path that Christ is walking. That is why it becomes easy and less burdensome. We're walking in the path of the obedient one. The good path. The flourishing path. And so he says, come to me. Be yoked to me. Walk with me. You'll know Flourishing in life. Just a couple of days ago, a brother in Christ passed on a, a, a devotional. I want to read a few words from it. Today it is possible to live in a city surrounded by one million people and be alone for a lifetime. We become a number, and no one ever loved the number. The systems of modernity swallow us alive. Bureaucracies, corporations, institutions, they all conjure up images of structures that inhale people and exhale cement. But our God is a personal God. And relationship is very important to Him. This is what we have in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One who would know us Not merely call us a number, but know our name. Know our needs. The whole of this text in Isaiah reveals a servant seeking to be obedient to his mission. To lift up the weary soul. And this points very much to the humanity of the servant Messiah. Here we are at Christmas and we celebrate the coming of God into His creation. But He comes... In what way? Not in angelic form. He comes in human flesh. 
in humanity. He takes on human nature. Why does He do this? Well, our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, asks this question in number 39. Why was it required that the mediator, the one who would intercede and mediate between God and man, why was it necessary that He Himself be man, human flesh? And the catechism gives four reasons. The first two reinforce this picture of the servant who is obedient in his life and in his ministry, in his calling, in his public ministry. Reason one, that the servant be of human flesh, to advance our nature. He comes as a man to advance our nature. What does this mean? Well, it was man, it was humanity that plunged itself into the cesspool of sin to a state it could not get itself out of or incline itself toward the Lord. And so God comes in flesh, not only to identify with us and we with Him, but then to raise or advance humanity in His likeness. In the likeness of the man, Christ Jesus. In a number of ways, uh, Jesus was quite ordinary. He was not impressive in height or strength or appearance. In fact, Isaiah tells us later in chapter 53 that he had no outward majesty in form or external beauty to attract, but he came as the sinless, sinless Son of God in order to bind people to himself and raise people to a new nature found in him. He gives us a new nature by uniting us to Him. Reason two, that the servant takes on flesh to obey the law of God. The first Adam was disobedient. The last Adam is obedient. A path needed to be paved for you and I to enter the presence of God. Think about the Psalms like Psalm 15. O Lord, who who shall sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The glory of God, the holiness of God, the brightness of God is so great. Who may dwell in His presence? Have you ever seen people attempt to climb the fence that surrounds the, the White House? Or you read stories of that, those efforts? I'm sure where people's minds are. And you know what happens to them? Well, they don't get very far, usually. Why? They don't have the credentials. They don't have the pass. They don't have the qualifications to get into that house and into that space. But that's just the White House. We're talking about the throne room of the Creator. We don't have those credentials. But the servant does. And those in Him are accounted His obedience. His righteousness becomes their righteousness. His holiness, theirs, by union through faith. So we see a servant here who is obedient in his listening, in his teaching ministry, in his call to to, to lift up the weary soul. But there's another way that he is obedient. 
revealed in the text. And that is in suffering and death. He's obedient in life and He is obedient unto death. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We are brought directly to the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. His own suffering. His own flogging. And ultimately, crucifixion. It's not hard at this time of year, at Christmas time, to tend toward maybe softening the message of Christianity. Maybe to, to wrap the nativity scene in a kind of charm or lights or warmth. It's so much easier for people to receive the infant child alone, lowly and innocent. But this infant child is destined for the most humiliating and horrific of deaths. Crucifixion and the weight of sin. I don't want to speculate, but we know that our Lord Jesus had a divine and has a divine nature from eternity past. No beginning. But He also had and assumed a human nature. Hebrews tells us that He learned obedience through what He suffered. He learned obedience. Luke 2 tells us that the child grew, He became strong and filled with wisdom. He was always without sin, but He grew in learning and in maturity and in knowledge as He sought after the will of God. And I only wonder, when did He realize, and I don't want to speculate, when did He realize that His identity, uh, that His destiny was the cross? In His human nature? Was it as a young boy? As a youth, did he realize at age 12 when in Luke 2 his parents are looking for him and they find him in the temple and he says, did you not know I must be in my father's house? Whenever he knew in his humanity that he was destined for the cross, we know he was laser focused. He was utterly determined to walk the road to Calvary. He says, I've set my face like a flint. Hard, unbreakable rock. So Christ was unshakable in His resolve to bear the suffering, to endure the shedding of blood, to breathe His last as a sacrifice for sin, to be obedient unto death. Death is all around Every day, I think about 180,000 people die in the world. At the end of this day, nearly 9,000 will have died in our country alone. And you think of all the tens of thousands impacted by this each and every day as they hear news of loved ones or friends. But death is not a mere chosen path for people. It is the inevitable consequence of sin in this fallen world. But our Lord, His death is different. Infinite, eternal, sinless, yet chose to set His face toward the cross. To give up His life purposefully, with love in His heart, perfect obedience in His will. 
He was obedient in life and He was obedient unto death. So our catechism provides two more reasons that He became man. One, to intercede for us. He bears upon Himself our sin. And lastly, to know the feelings of our infirmities. So that we have a high priest. We have a Savior who is not unable to empathize with us. With our weakness and our pain, but who knows suffering. And who can help in time of need. For all that Christ does for us, all that He accomplishes for us, He's also setting forth a pattern for our lives as believers. He's pointing us in the direction of fearing the Lord, trusting God, relying upon Him. As we heard in verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. We do that, not in order to become righteous, but having been united to Him who has, in a way, robed us in that righteousness, we live out our lives trusting in the Lord our God. Charles Spurgeon preached on that text, I have set my face like a flint. Just a few words from Spurgeon. He says, My great object is to lead you to love Him who so loved you that He set His face like a flint in His determination to save you. O you redeemed ones, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, you who have been bought by the precious blood of this steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of Him, that your hearts may burn within you, and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for Him who lived and died for you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we rejoice in this servant, Your Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior of sinners, our Savior. This One who was obedient. Obedient in life, obedient unto death. Oh Lord, may we find our lives hidden in Him, united to Him, that it would move us to trust and lean upon You, to reverence Your name. Lord, how we thank You for Christmas, for the coming of Jesus Christ, for the light piercing the darkness, hope piercing despair. And we thank You for this One who set His face like a flint, who committed Himself resolutely to go to the cross for us. Lord, may it fill our hearts with joy and thanks with gratitude and with desire, a growing desire, Lord, to live our lives after You in obedience, knowing that You have received us through the work of the servant. Bind us to Him evermore and bind us, Lord, to one another in Him. Continue, Lord, to nourish us, Lord, as we both sing praises unto You and as You feed us with the Lord's Supper. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.